that all political careers end in failure. And along the way, it's extremely hard. But what it is, is a roller coaster, uh, a roller coaster of highs and lows and joys and sorrows and huge successes and some failures. Um, and it's kind of real life on, on steroids sometimes, uh, an awful lot of email to go through and an awful lot of upset people. But what, what, I suppose if I were to boil it right down, just like Clausewitz said, uh, uh, war is a continuation of politics by other means, I would turn that on its head and say uh, politics is war minus the shooting. My name is Johnny Ball, and I'm the founder of Campaign Force, a not-for-profit that inspires, trains, and coaches the armed forces community to stand up and serve again. I've served on the front line of military operations, and in civilian life, the front line of UK politics. This Veterans in Politics podcast is a set of interviews brought to you by Campaign Force and sets out to explore how the military community can help make our politics a better place. I lean into my little black book of contacts and sit down with individuals from across the world of politics, sharing secrets, giving tips and advice and inspiring the next generation. We are Campaign Force. This is the Veterans in Politics podcast. Let's introduce you to our guest. This week's guest is former RAF Engineering Officer Steve Baker MP. Steve has been the face of many campaigns, including a leading figure of the ERG and Chairman of Conservative Way Forward, as well as a vocal scrutineer of his own party's approach to COVID. It's time for you to meet our guest. We're joined by Steve Baker, a former RAF officer, and a big voice in politics, as many of you will have seen in recent times with the relaunch of Conservative Way Forward. Steve, it's absolutely brilliant to sit down with you because I think the first time I met you was at a briefing for the 2015 Conservative Party Manifesto. Seems like a long time ago now, doesn't it? It does, Johnny, and thanks very much for having me on. That uh, I remember that occasion very well. Uh, the agents of the Conservative Party are absolutely indispensable and very much neglected, so I was very glad to go and see them. Um, but there we are. Feel, it does feel like a long time ago. <laughs> well, that's, that's generous of you to say. As a retired Conservative Party agent, um, it's, it's nice to see MPs flying the flag for the professional party and professionals in politics. Because as you... uh, The agents are the heroes of politics, and people. I would encourage everyone to remember that there's plenty of jobs in politics beyond being an MP, you know, councillors and plenty of different roles within the party as well as agent. So, yeah, people who are interested in politics uh, should know there's plenty you can do without actually standing for election. Yeah, and as much as I evangelise over Parliament and local government in this podcast, um, in through our webinars and training events, we do talk up professional uh, po- roles to play in politics too i mean it'd be massively remiss of me not to have been that's my background itself but your background is of course in the royal air force uh, that's where, where you started your professional career can you tell us a little bit about your motivations for signing up for the royal air force and some of those highlights of that career yeah sure i mean i was um, a, an air cadet when i was a teenager and absolutely loved the air force and being an air cadet i was interested in engineering Nobody from my family had been to university before me, so uh, I was very interested to apply for a a sixth form scholarship and a flying scholarship, though I was an engineer, uh, on condition I went then for a university cadetship. So I followed straight through aerospace systems engineering at Southampton and into the Air Force, expecting then to stay in the Air Force throughout my whole career. 
Um, I had three tours. First was mechanical components at Leeming, where I made loads of mistakes as a 23-ish year old um, leading people, you know, very young to be doing that. Uh, but um, that was great. I mean, some highlights were four Harriers on the uh, manoeuvring area, and one of the pilots started all four of them while the other three were briefing the flight home, and one of them caught fire. <laughs> so that was an exciting moment. Um being a Jaguar Django was amazing. I mean, trips to Norway, too many great moments to talk about, like the aircraft that went into Andoya uh, with a bird strike. We thought it needed an engine change. So at very short notice, I put a team of guys in an engine uh, and a proper qualifications for maybe a bit of airframes, but mostly engines, onto a Chinook, and we flew to Andoya. And when we got there, the bird had gone down the outside of the intake, not the inside, and we had to uh, – We the engine was fine, but we did have to design a, a repair to uh, – the airframe, which I did, and we fitted. So, you know, there were all sorts of fantastic things, and you know, reheat ground running in Egypt in the desert when there was nowhere to, you know, silence it at all. You know, they, these were all great things, you know, in the nighttime. Um, that was great. But uh, I left the Air Force in 99 because I, I, the dot-com boom was happening. I didn't really want to be the uh, engineering authority for a gas turbine. I, I wanted to do weapons and avionics. So the Air Force and I, much as I enjoyed it, parted company. MSc in computer science, then business software, and uh, the rest is history. It's funny. Um, the amount of MPs I've spoken to from the Armed Forces background, a lot of it started in the cadets. And indeed, yeah. my love of the Army started at a young age through the Army Cadet Force. And I just think it's such a fantastic set of organisations, all those cadet movements. And I know they're not there to recruit directly into the Armed Forces, and you'll get a few people saying to the contrary. Um, but they're just such a, a superb place to develop young people. And the more we can talk up and mention the cadets, the better as far as I'm concerned. Um, yeah, absolutely. There's so many wonderful things for, for young people to do. I mean, scouting's great too. But if you're interested in the armed forces, I'd absolutely recommend the cadets. Nothing quite like it. Of course, you get to go flying and so on. So, and, and indeed to shoot, shoot rifles. So there's lots to like about being an air cadet. I must admit, I was a bit jealous because we were in the same hut as the air cadets that were next door and hearing about all their exports going gliding and flying and stuff was, yeah, it, it was a bit, we're a bit envious of that. I'll be, be, I couldn't possibly get into inter-surface rivalry. <laughs> <laughs> well, you couldn't because obviously you are a member of parliament representing um, an area with close links to the Royal Air Force. So you've kind of got your home away from home in that sense. Well, I mean, what's it like being an MP rep with armed forces links, particularly with the RAF, representing a large constituency of RAF personnel. What's that like? Well, it's a great joy. I mean, Air Command is just outside my constituency boundary. This ironic that RAF High Wycombe is in the Aylesbury constituency. But High Wycombe Air Base has uh, the freedom of our town. It's always fantastic to see the Royal Air Force on parade in High Wycombe, um, as they would be for Battle of Britain or, or Remembrance. Uh, but one of the things I notice, which since members of the armed forces are going to see this, I, I want to say thank you, because in contrast to when I served, there's just so much pressure now. I mean, there was pressure on us to be away, but there's just really so much pressure now on the armed forces to be away. But very often there are not uh, not really sufficient members of the Royal Air Force to, to put on a parade in, in High Wycombe because they're just away. So... Um, I'm really grateful for what people do. My wife is also ex-Air Force. She left in 2010. She was a doctor. She went to Iraq and to Afghanistan, um, amongst other places. So we've both got roundels running all the way through, you know, and that does help, of course, when we're representing people who've served in the, in the Royal Air Force. Or indeed people who currently serve, because I've got lots of people who live at Medmenham in the south of my constituency. So, yes. 
Oh, well, you and your downstairs loo at home of all those um, like uh, relics and uh, and trophies and and pictures of your RAF joint RAF careers must be outstanding in your house. Um, or, uh, well, I don't know about that. The trouble is in our house is our relics have escaped and ended up all around the house. We got pictures of jaguars and Hercules and hawks and all sorts um, harriers. In, in in most rooms of the house so there's not much mistaking that we're ex-earthers <laughs> well i don't get away with that i my my stuff is confined to my garden shed that's for sure my wife has banned all, all i'm allowed one photo and it's an afghan painting that i'm allowed to have in the house which is quite beautiful um but was that as you did obviously transition you went into business as you as you mentioned and and then eventually you find yourself in politics um, most people, I always ask people this question about what is their why? What was that thing that got them involved in politics? Too often we hear the stories of uh, people that wanted to be an MP when they were 13 and went, became special advisors and then became uh, members of parliament and didn't do anything else. But of course, you did do something else and both a military and a business career. But was there a particular moment or a catalyst that really fired you up to say, do you know what? I'm going to stand up and serve again in politics. What was that? Um, yeah, I'm afraid that there really was. You know, I had no interest in being a politician. I followed current events, but I was enjoying being a software engineer. Uh, but it was the Lisbon Treaty, the Constitution for Europe, that that was renamed the Lisbon Treaty and restructured. And they did that deliberately to avoid having to abide by the results of a referenda. You know, in Europe, people said no to the Constitution for Europe. So they rammed it through as the Lisbon Treaty. The Conservative Party said it would not let matters rest there. And I'm afraid that was, for me, the trigger. Prior to that happening, I was pro a federal Europe, which people find hard to believe. But I was in favour of a federal Europe. I was in favour of the euro. But I did uh, always believe that I was going to get a vote in a referendum. And in the end, I've had to work quite hard to get that vote and in the aftermath. So, uh, um, you know, this was not the right way for the European elites to push their project forward. It's created enormous amounts of trouble. Um, but, you know, I just wish they'd actually abided by the results of the referenda where the public in other countries said no. Um, but that's a long story, obviously. Other things, super interested in monetary theory. I was at Lehman Brothers when I decided to get into politics and it was boom, 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 bust. So I've got a long-standing interest in monetary policy that I've always agitated for. And also, I didn't believe we should have gone into Iraq or indeed Afghanistan. And while I want to absolutely respect the sacrifices that people have made, some sacrifices which they will live with their whole lives, um, I don't think we should have gone. And that is a political issue. And that was one of the other reasons that I got into politics, to stop unnecessary wars. And we can get into that if you like. But you know, people can look at my voting record. I voted for Libya against Syria. Um, and I rather regretted voting for Libya, but that's another story for another day. But they're all tough calls. Yeah, I, I think you've picked on something there that people from the armed forces community do tend to give these things a lot more consideration because we all understand the consequences from having experienced friends um, who are like family to us who have paid the ultimate sacrifice. So many, I think that's probably a false impression that some might have of the armed forces community and those that have served to kind of be more hawkish, more on the, you know, yes, let, let's go to war. But actually, if you do look at the voting records of some members of parliament and do look at the contribution to those debates, it tends to be far more considered and quite surprising when you actually look at, at the record, would you say? Uh, well, I wouldn't like to comment on other colleagues' um, level of thought. I know everybody holds it um, 
as a very serious decision. What I would say, though, is I remember on the Libya vote, I was minded to vote against and I was persuaded under UN responsibility to protect that we should go in just to protect the people of Benghazi. We then went on to provide close air support in one side of a civil war, in my view. And that's why I was very unhappy to have voted for it. But here's the point. When I walked into the eye lobby, I had face full of tears because I was thinking, I know what this means and where it could run. I walked into the lobby behind a guy about, I'm just about six foot tall. There was a guy four inches taller than me, a big, big former soldier, hard man. And he turned around and his face was full of tears too. Served in Northern Ireland and the rest of it, because we do know, although the Air Force obviously is not the same as being on the ground with the army, but we we do know, you know. So we all take it very seriously. And we're aware that we're sending other people to do the most difficult job. Um, But the other thing I would say is that there's a great argument for Parliament not voting on conflict. One of the problems is if you're an MP and you vote to have a war, then you've been co-opted into that decision. And it's natural that afterwards you should defend it. Whereas if the Prime Minister just decides and does it under prerogative powers, which is the old fashioned way, then members of Parliament are much more likely to scrutinise the decision and hold to account. And actually, I think that's the way to do it. They keep Every time I've voted on this, they've said, oh, there's intelligence we can't share with you. Well, if you can't share it with me, don't ask me the question. Just do it, and I'll hold you to account. And that's the way I believe it ought to work. Um, I don't think we should be asking MPs to vote on war and peace when they can't have all the intelligence. That is fascinating. And coming from a military intelligence background myself, I couldn't possibly comment about the value of intelligence. Um, But you haven't been shy from holding the government, whether it be a government that you happen um, to be in the same team for or a government in in opposition. You've you've certainly been classed, I guess, as one of the more rebellious MPs. I think you were even got some uh there was some kind of award of the top 10 most rebellious mps and you appeared in. Oh. but um it's, does that always come about do you think that's more by um happens that's dictated more by the political landscape and the issue of the day rather than any kind of grandiose intention to be a rebellious mp do you think that's what dictates your thought well absolutely no desire to be a rebel um, I appreciate the value of loyalty and discipline as a former member of the armed forces. I did come into politics to get us a referendum on the Lisbon Treaty. And indeed, I was a, a minister uh, in, in the course of leaving the EU. Uh, but it became clear to me that the policy over which I and Boris Johnson and David Davis resigned would have led to destroying the Conservative Party and installing a Labour government, We, have, in addition to being the wrong kind of way to exit the EU. But that, of course, is why it would have destroyed the government and split the party. So that I decided it had to be changed. So I'm well known for that historic rebellion. But in a sense, it's one issue, a very historic thing to have done. And then on COVID, again, it's the issue of the day. Um, And I, well, colleagues encouraged me to organise something and I did. And I've also got concerns about net zero. But what I would say to people is, although I've led some very, very large rebellions, I'm no scattergun rebel. You won't see that in my record. I voted against HS2, but... You know, there are colleagues who come in here who vote against things at the drop of a hat and help the Labour Party write their leaflets, but that's not me. Um, I just happen to have organised and led some of the biggest and most historic rebellions in any of our lifetimes. But that doesn't make me um, an enthusiastic rebel. I would far, far rather always vote with my party. Yeah, and I think that's a fair comment. And the words that you use there, organised and led, 
um, because that's manifested itself in these interest groups. So I mentioned at the beginning, Conservative Way Forward, that you've just relaunched, um, and and people will be aware of the ERG as well um, yeah. as, as a prominent pressure group from within the Conservative Party. Can you tell our listeners a little bit more about about those groups, how they manifest, and what's their purpose and those kind of outcomes that you try to achieve with those kind of groups? Yeah. So in general, politics uh, exists in this sort of um, cloud of different organisations all trying to shift the terrain of debate. You know, there's a kind of window of acceptable political policies and there's uh, all sorts of organisations on left and right campaigning to shift that terrain, whether it be the Fabian Society on the left or the Adam Smith Institute on the classical liberal side or, or, or whatever policy exchange on the conservative side. So there's all these organisations trying to shift the terrain of debate about, a bit like a battlefield. Where's the battlefield going to be? And they're all competing for it. Now, the ERG, actually, is actually just there to provide collective research support. We all require research here in Parliament. We've got questions about how a treaty works. We need to have somebody to look it up. And the ERG, strictly... Um, is there to provide collective research support. But for better or worse, the ERG became known as the shorthand for all the Conservative Eurosceptic MPs. Um, But the ERG itself proper is is there to provide research support. But um, we ended up with a much larger group of MPs campaigning together and the banner was applied to us and then it was a lost cause to try and call it anything else. Um, Conservative Way Forward uh, has existed since Margaret Thatcher was deposed, and it exists to sort of embody that free market uh, conservative legacy. But what we're going to do, I haven't quite relaunched it yet. I've said that I'll relaunch it, but the proper relaunch will come soon. But what we're going to do is redefine conservatism to be a much more relational approach, because everybody knows that relationships are at their best when they're voluntary. And so we're going to talk about society as relationship and hopefully create a new ground for conservative thought, which we can all be proud of. And um, so these are all organisations designed to research what the best policy ought to be, to try and make that policy attractive and to try and shift the terrain of debate. And um, there are loads of organisations that do this, you know, left, right, centre. And my job, I suppose, as a politician is to play my part in creating a terrain of ideas which will be really appealing to the public and crucially, which will work. And, and I think that's a really good thing for people. To, if they're looking to get involved in politics, they might look at their local conservative association or their constituency Labour Party and other parties apply, by the way. Um, they might think, oh, God, you know, that's a bit of a barrier to entry of involvement with. Con- they might not think that's not their particularly their bag. So they can look at organisations like, like the Conservative Way Forward, for, as an example, of a way of contributing and having a relationship with politics. So I would definitely urge our listeners, no matter where you sit in your politics, look at those organisations, and it's a really good way of engaging and introducing yourself to ideas and getting to meet people like you, of course. Well, Johnny, I'd be, thank you. (laughs) I'd be failing in my duty, though, Johnny, if I didn't encourage your listeners to just join the political party of their choice. And it's £25 a year to be a Conservative. I don't know about the other parties. But, you know, we need not just candidates in all, at all levels, but we also need people to take part in candidate selections. You know, the more candidates we've got, the more competition we have for those places, the more people choosing, then the better the quality of candidates will be. And actually, for the sake of £25 a year and turning up to a few meetings to choose candidates, really, you could make a very, all your listeners could make a very, very big difference to politics whichever party they, they they join. So I would encourage people to take part. I mean, the, the power of party membership is often neglected. 
And 2022 is a great time to join a political party because many across all parties will be reselecting their candidates. Um, so those that will be holding AGMs in political parties this year will be setting up those selection bodies in the Conservative Party known as executives, where those key decision makers of the grassroots will have a say. So if you ask... Yeah. If you are slightly frustrated about your with your local MP, you can have a say on your candidate and potentially the leader or the prime minister of the country as well, as we've all uh, recently experienced. And hey, we may experience in the future, but let's not get into all of that right now. Um, but as we do look forward to as the political dynamic um, changes, as you look at doing the hard launch of Conservative Way Forward, there are going to be other challenges. And I guess uh, CWF is a way of responding to those future challenges coming up. And um, what, what what are the other challenges that we're facing, whether it's globally or domestically as a country? And, and what do you see your contribution being um, in that kind of post-COVID landscape that we're hopefully fast approaching? When we um, look at uh, the post-COVID landscape, the, the single most important factor we have is, is our recovery. So the huge backlog, for example, of cancer treatment. Um, and helping the NHS to cope. And actually, that's got an obligation on all of us, which, again, the uh, armed forces training can help us with. Keeping ourselves in reasonable shape so that we don't get diabetes, for example, can help alleviate the pressure on the NHS, apart from being good for us ourselves. Um, I lost two stone in 2013 because my wife, the GP, said, you know, you're going to get diabetes, Steve. And so there's a lot we can all do to help with that. Um, the economy, of course, we've done quite well on building a bridge over the crisis, but that implies a very large debt. We've now got inflation coming in, which doesn't surprise me after all the QE we've had. So those issues are, are big ones. The answer to those issues, in my view, is conservatism, limited government, lower taxes, balanced budgets, sound money. You know, we know what conservative economic policy looks like. We've just got to deliver it, but that's hard. Um, we've got so many issues of poverty to deal with. You know, we came to power in 2010 talking about social justice. We've got to deliver it. You know, the food bank in Wickham's become a big operation. I don't like that. I don't think it's, I think it's more shaming on as an indictment of the welfare state than it is shaming on me or this government. But it's crazy that, you know, we've had 111 years since National Insurance uh, Act of 1911 and still the welfare state isn't working in the way we would all want. So that that's going to be huge. Um, and, you know, we've got to deliver uh, great educations and an opportunity. I think we can do amazing things as a country. I think it's a fantastic place to live, but we are going to have to start looking after how looking after each other's money a lot better, for example. Um, internationally, I think Ukraine obviously is a pinch point, but Russia and China, in a sense, there's a polarisation now between the democratic maritime states like ourselves and the... Um, Eurasian authoritarians. And I think that polarity we've got to work, watch, particularly in the way that it works out in international institutions like the WTO. So if, if you're asking me for a quick canter through, that's that's where I'd sort of start. But there's so many other things to consider. But if I may, when I approach any of these questions, I think there's about five questions that any person needs to, a good answer to. Imagine you're waking up on a desert island. Am I safe? Who am I? Um, who cares? What shall I do? Where can I find fulfilment? So that's safety, identity, community, productivity, and uh, joy. And everybody needs good answers to all those questions. And there's, a, I believe, a limited role for state coercion in most of those questions, right? Obviously, the state's got to keep us safe and secure. But I don't want the state telling me my identity or anybody else's, but it should be there to make sure we can live out our identity as we wish. 
And certainly who we have relationships with. Well, again, the state's got a role in making sure our relationships aren't harmful. But I don't want the state picking my friends or, you know, which charitable causes I give to. And, and on, on it goes. So, you know, life's, life's complex and dynamic. And I think members, former members of the armed forces have got a lot to offer potentially to politics and to society once they've left. Well, you're not going to hear me disagree with that last point because and it's really difficult to draw those comparisons to post-Second World War where they physically had to rebuild this country. And I've been really fortunate to have worked and, and met uh, a World War II veteran called Jimmy Knox, who sadly passed away over Christmas and New Year. He was one of the last surviving veterans of the Monte Cassino campaign from the Parachute Regiment. And he was I was asking him these questions about what it was like to return to London, where he actually physically had to rebuild um, find work and reintegrate into life, having been away for so many years from, from home. And I, I guess if we look at our community now from the armed forces and having been through quite a high operational tempo, a high domestic operational tempo, whether you look at the floods or helping local authorities during COVID-19, uh, we have quite a small community of veterans uh, like yourself who can have so much to give to society to help with all those ideas that you've just spoken about so it's just a question of us asking them to do it business are doing it asking them to get involved and we've seen the armed forces covenant and the various um splinter programs uh, off of that but as public life it's not just about obviously parliament but or working as an agent for a political party it could be a jp could be the chairman of your local rugby team um totally so many parts in our society where we can stand up and serve our community and that would be my call to action today do you know, I remember, it's a long time now since I left the RAF, but I do remember as I left going through various resettlement programmes and people just weren't sure they had any transferable skills. But I look, that, look back now and it's just such madness for members of the armed forces not to appreciate their worth. I mean, the fact that people turn up on time looking smart and work hard all day long, you know, that's not universal. And then you build on top of that teamwork, communication skills, drive, resilience, you know, the, the, the tenacious ability to seek after whatever it is that needs doing today, that is what the armed forces can bring. So, you know, the values, the skills, the talents of members of the armed forces are absolutely invaluable, whether in public life or the private sector. And I would encourage everybody to just really understand their own value. Don't let anybody tell you that you, you haven't got transferable skills. You absolutely have. The one thing I think that members of the armed forces ought to think about is just what it means to live commercially. Because sometimes you just got to raise the invoice and get the invoice paid, and I think perhaps if you come out of the armed forces, you, that's that's the thing you've got to get used to. That you've actually got to do a sales process. You've got to raise invoices. You've got to bill your time or whatever it may be, and and get those invoices paid, or the company goes bust. And that obviously is a change. But just get used to the idea and 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 fit in, and people can do that. Uh, and yeah, talking up your your value and also your values because the armed force community have those in abundance too. And as and just before we close out, Steve, as someone that's not um, exactly shy away from giving your opinion or speaking your mind, um, <laughs> perhaps perhaps if it was me and I'd say, hey, Steve, um, you know, we went out for a, for a, a, a coffee or something, maybe a little stronger, who knows? Uh, and I said, Steve, I want to be an MP. Um, and you're going to get the, the usual answers that come from MPs. I mean, what is it that's brutally honest that you need to tell me to really, I'm, I'm someone that's got a family, um, you know, that that's worked hard in commercial career. What do I need to know from you before I set forward on this journey to becoming an MP? Give me the brutal truth. Well, I would normally spend half an hour to an hour trying to put people off because I would explain it's an extremely long journey. There's only an election about every four or five years. 
normally. Um, so it can be a very, very long journey, a very, very competitive process. It can take over your entire life being a candidate and being a member of parliament. Certainly it can take over seven days a week being an MP. But the, all political careers end in failure. And along the way, it's extremely hard. But what it is, is a roller coaster, uh, a roller coaster of highs and lows and joys and sorrows and huge successes and some failures. Um, and it's kind of real life on, on steroids sometimes, uh, an awful lot of email to go through and an awful lot of upset people. But what, what I suppose if I were to boil it right down, just like Clausewitz said, uh, uh, war is a continuation of politics by other means, I would turn that on its head and say uh, politics is war minus the shooting. And I, I, that's the thing I would ask your listeners to take away. By all means, get involved in politics, but it's war minus the shooting. You should expect to be attacked. And, if, and you should expect to have to survive first. And that, by the way, just means complying with all the rules. Uh, but I'll leave that there. Let's put your body armour on. Steve Baker, yeah. thank you very much. We'll leave it there. Thank you. Thanks to our guests and thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast, hit subscribe now. Alternatively, you can support our mission by checking out in the show notes below where you can rate, donate or become our mate. Thank you.